everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, on this the 20th of May 2015, it's my great pleasure to be speaking once again to our good friend Dr Tim Ball, who joins us for the fifth time on the programme. And just in case you're one of those very few people out there um, who are listeners to the alternative media, but you've not heard Dr. Ball speak, then let me assure you that you're in for a treat because he's always absolutely great to listen to. He has an encyclopedic mind and always entertaining to boot. Dr. Ball, of course, is, I'm going to say, a retired professor of climatology at the University of Winnipeg, but perhaps we might want to nuance that expression in a moment, uh, where he taught for about 25 years or so, and an environmentalist, a public speaker, consultant, author, and columnist. Dr. Ball, it's great to be speaking with you again in your retirement. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. And and one of the things I've done through my career is to try to eliminate the word retired, because uh, unfortunately, when when you say that now, people automatically assume that your brain is shut off the the day you you quit work. And and, um, I think that one of the great tragedies of certainly Western society in today's today's world is um, the value put on experience. And we put uh, these experienced people out to pasture because some insurance company has said they're now at retirement age and they've got our government is, and they've got to go. What I like to say is I'm, I didn't retire. I'm just doing something different. I've also thought, by the way, that um, we should draw pension till we're 40 and then work till we die because we've got that the wrong way around as well. You know, that it's, it's getting things in sync that when you've got the time, you haven't got the money. When you get the money, you haven't got the time. And this <laughs> yeah. is all part of the whole concept of retirement. So I pity people that have not thought about what they're going to do after they stop doing what they're doing to make a living. Mm. But I suppose with people like yourself, you are still doing, to some extent, what you were doing when you were um, full-time as a lecturer, because you're continuing your study and your research? Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. And, and, and of course, um, I taught a seniors class for about 20 years, and uh, it was interesting because when I started, 65 was a senior. When, when I ended, 85 was a senior. But the frustration of those people who were raised being told that once you get old and have experience, that experience would be valued. And of course, they retire and their their experience is not only not valued, but nobody wants to listen to them. You know, oh, you don't you don't run a computer. What on earth can you possibly know about the world? So it, it's a tragedy. I looked at it, Julian, in Aboriginal communities in North America, mm. where um, the elders were the fount of wisdom. They now have posters amongst the Aboriginal community here in Canada saying, you've stopped listening to the elders. Listen to the elders. And uh, it's part of this same trend. So why do you think, well, this is the main thing that we're going to be talking about today, but it is very interesting. Why do you think the Western culture has gone in that kind of direction? It's partly because of the whole idea that you you work for a pension to be able to retire and that when you uh, retire and get your pension, you you go out to pasture. Mm. There's also, of course, this focus upon youth that uh, now uh, young people have not just as much say. I mean, it's it's valuable that they have input, but in many cases, uh, they have greater input into what's going on. And uh, it's all part of this whole um, X factor or X generation and millennium thing. But this is, these are the changes going on in society all, all the time. For the longest time, as you know, the adage was um, children to be, should be seen and not heard. And then once children got a voice, then that voice for a while becomes absolutely dominant. And I remember uh, talking to an Aboriginal woman, Canadian Aboriginal woman, and I said, you know, what you're asking for is ridiculous. And she just smiled and she said, it's our turn. And so what happens when a minority group get ascendancy and become a majority, they tend to overachieve or over demand for a while. Do you think there's anything to the thought that 
Obviously, this doesn't apply to everybody, of course, that everybody is different. But as a whole, do you get the impression that younger people are more easy to control? That's not to say that they themselves might think that they're easy to control. But I just wonder whether with experience and wisdom comes perhaps a greater independence of mind. And so therefore, it's in the interests of people with authority to give younger voices more of a say, because they're more likely to say what they're expected yeah. to say. I don't know. I just get that impression sometimes. No, that's true. True. That's true. I mean, when when you think about uh, peer pressure, mm. uh, I always used to tease them. You know, they conform or they non-conform by conforming. You know, they all wear the same clothes and they all put the tattoos on and they all do the the same thing. So yeah, they're they're as my mother used to say about me when I was young. I was very easily led. Mm. But it's very interesting to look at what's happening the climate area, which of course is my particular area of interest, the young people are indoctrinated into believing that humans are causing global warming and climate change. And the challenge is all of the skeptics are of the older generation. They're the ones, and it used to be in universities that young people came in and challenged the old, older prevailing wisdoms. Now it's exactly the opposite. And uh, this is all part of this temporary ascendancy of youth but I think that lost in that, of course, is the value of experience. Yeah. And so what we really need is a balance, don't we? So we have a balance of young yeah. freshness with, of course, the experience of age. And until we get that balance right, yes. the whole of our society really is open to exploitation in various ways. Now, of course, of course. We're not, this, this, is, this is not what we're going to be mainly speaking no, about no. today. But, but actually, what we are going to be speaking about is somewhat of a, an enigma, really, because the last time we spoke, you said to me there was a particular subject that you would love to talk about. And somewhat to my surprise, you said that you'd like to discuss maps. And I wasn't entirely <laughs> clear what you meant by that. And um, although with our emails, I've got a little bit more of an idea of, of what you meant by that. I'm still not absolutely certain what you have in mind. So what I'm going to do, and this is extremely unusual for me, as anybody who listens to this show will know. Um, in fact, I don't think I've ever done this before, actually. I like to know exactly what's going to happen, you know, what my questions are in principle anyway. Um, what I'm going to do is basically open the floor to you and see where it goes. So I'll start in the style of the late, great Dr. Stanley Monteith, who will be known to many listeners to TMR. And uh, he was really brilliant at navigating conversation, especially unpredictable ones. So I'm going to start by quoting him. So Dr. Ball, uh, will you please pick up the story from there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, of course, one, one of the things we talked about in that intro is people need to know what direction they're going or where they're going. And of course, throughout history, they've um, done it by maps, producing maps uh, that, that give them an idea of what surrounds them and, and where to, how to navigate through that landscape. But there are two kinds of maps. There, there's the physical map that you draw that you can then share with other people or, or that gives you a reminder of the route or the path. And then there are mental maps. Mm. And mental maps are, are how we uh, relate to our world around us and how we see our world around us. And um, it's amazing. Uh, people don't realize they have a mental map or how much that mental map is is controlling what they do. But every one of us has had an experience of traveling with somebody else, and they're taking a different route, one you're not familiar with. And then you turn onto a street, and then you suddenly start noticing landmarks. And those landmarks, you start to realize, oh, yeah, now I recognize this street by those landmarks, and you can re then reorientate yourself. And it's very interesting with the studies done on mental maps, they relate to your world because as a child, you ask a child to draw a map and they'll basically draw a map of their house or possibly their garden. And then as they go to school, it would include the, the school area. So as, as their world expands, their mental maps expand. Yes. Up to the point where you get to about 9, 10, 11, where you really love the idea of completely imaginative maps. I used to love that at school. Where, oh. I, I wish we would be told to do it more, you know, because whenever, you know, have an imaginary land and draw a map. Oh, great. This is a fantastic lesson. You know? Yeah, well, exactly. But of course, you see, then, then the question is, what's over the horizon? And we can only imagine that. We tend to do it on the basis of our current experience. For example, in the age of discovery and exploration in the 17th and 18th century, discoverers knew that if you followed a, a river up to its source, 
you're, of course, going up the hillside or the mountain, they knew that if you then crossed over the uh, height of ground to the other side, there would be another stream taking you down the other side out to a, another lake or ocean. So there was that kind of, of uh, awareness if you think about, uh, say, somebody like Francis Drake sailing on the west coast of North America in a square rigged vessel, I mean, his ability to read the landscape was quite remarkable. Now, I'll give you an example of this. I taught labs for students in geography classes on how to read maps and, and uh, aerial photography and so on. And I found that there were some students that no matter what you did or how you taught them, they couldn't translate a contour map into a three-dimensional form. They couldn't visualize the contours indicating going up or going down or where the valleys were and so on. And similarly, there were students who couldn't, no matter how much they looked at a stereo pair, couldn't see the third dimension. This is not a lack of understanding, is it? No. Okay. This is just a, a power of imagination. Well, it's not just power of imagination. It's innate abilities. I mean, I'll give you a bizarre one to illustrate it. And this has always fascinated me. When I talk with my students about this, I'd, I'd apologize. Say, look, I'm not sticking my tongue out at you. But if you put your tongue, all of us can curl the tongue in an upside down U. Only a few people can curl it in the other direction. And the question I ask is, why can some do that and not others? Why is that an innate ability? Who would ever need that? And it's the same way, by the way, that Descartes, the great mathematician, who, of course, is so influential in putting a grid system onto our world, the Cartesian grid, spatial relationships of things. His calling card was simply a little blank card on which he drew freehand a perfect circle. And there are some people, I had, a, I had a friend, his daughter could do it. She could just take a pencil and wow. do a perfect circle. Well, I certainly can't do that. I've tried to do that many times. I just cannot. Well, exactly. But, yeah. but the question is why, why that yeah. ability? But, of course, as I said, I, I mentioned Cartesian grid in there. And, of course, that's what we see with the latitude and longitude, spatial relationships. Yeah. So you say, you say there are these physical maps, but there are also these mental maps. And it mental strikes, maps, it, yeah. It, yeah. It strikes me that... On the whole, the mental map is something that we create ourselves, although not completely, of course, because we're informed by other people. But by and large, the physical map is something that's given to us by other people. Yes. And at that point, it seems to me there's a difficulty there, isn't there? Because a map is not just something that's objective. And right. I dug out a little pocket atlas here, a Collins pocket atlas, and I think it was published in 1972. Yeah. Yes, 1972. And I've got here a map of the world. And the thing that really stands out about this is the colour pink. Yeah. It's almost as if, you know, because that's the thing that stands out, that's what it's telling you. Um, and of course, this is a leftover of the British Empire, the Commonwealth countries. Um, so it's not an objective map. As yep. I say, it's almost as if it's telling you one well, thing. How you colored the countries was, was a subliminal message. So that communist countries were always red and aggressive and not to be trusted. And the, the Commonwealth countries were pink or pastel colors. And then when you look at a map of the world, uh, you can almost always tell where it was produced because the country that produced it will try to put itself as close to the center of the map as possible. <laughs> yes, right. I, I often think that about the UK being yep. in the center of most of the maps that we ever look at. And in fact, it wasn't that long ago, it was only a couple of months ago or so that um, I went to my parents' church and the it, minister there did a children's address thing. And it was really interesting because he brought a map in that was completely upside down and didn't have yep. the UK at the centre. And that was right. quite instructive for all of us. I and mean, quite a few of the oh, adults yeah. had not seen that before. And just that thought mm -hmm. was... In fact, the biggest landmass was clearly Russia. And it looked as if it was... You know, Russia was most of the world with a load of islands around it. It was very interesting. Well, related to that and linking back to the Cartesian comment I made, we divide the world up into latitude and longitude. And uh, latitude is a an actual natural physical measure. You can determine your latitude by measuring the angle of the sun at noon and then extrapolating that back to the latitude you are on the earth. And that ability has been around for thousands of years. Certainly the Vikings had that ability. And up until the tw almost the 20th century, people sailed around by what was called latitude sailing. Mm -hmm. 
each sailor knew what the latitude of their home port was, and all they had to do was sail north or south until they hit that latitude and sail along that latitude till they hit their home port. And I'll tell you how that influences maps and uh, history. When the European colonial powers were expanding out to the world in the age of discovery, latitude sailing was dominant. Well, the, the English couldn't go into the English Channel because they'd be attacked by the French. So they would go north. The Hudson Bay Company certainly would go north to uh, the Orkney Islands and then sail across the Atlantic from that latitude. And that took them naturally into Hudson Straits and into Hudson Bay. So the European or British or English, English intrusion into North America was through Hudson Bay. The French couldn't go north because of the English and couldn't go south because of the Spanish. So they sailed across and ended up in the St. Lawrence and along down to Louisiana. So that was the French settlement in North America. And then the Spanish, of course, couldn't go north because of the French and the English. So they, they sailed to the Canary Islands and sailed that latitude across. And that naturally brought them into uh, Central America, which, of course, is where Columbus landed. And so you see the distribution of the European powers in the New World was directly a function of latitude sailing. The other point with that Cartesian grid is latitude can be physically measured. Longitude is a completely different situation. It's just the coincidence of history that the country that ruled the world, because it ruled the world's oceans at the time that longitude became important, was Britain. The English Navy was central to everything. So they drew the zero longitude through Greenwich. And of course, Greenwich was the home of the, of the uh, English Navy. And just by coincidence, there's virtually no land on the other side of the world through the 180 degree line of longitude. Right. And just imagine if you had the times or date change through the middle of a whole continent. I mean, it would be chaotic. And it's just by good fortune that it happens to run down through the Bering Straits mm. and, and, and so on. And so One of the things that occurs yeah. to me is, uh, you know, to what extent does the fact that this kind of map, you know, is used throughout the world, um, to what extent does that sort of impress upon people the notion that the Anglo-American kind of uh, alliance should actually be dominant over the world? I mean, it sort of gives that message as if, as if that's the correct state of affairs. Well, it, all civilizations uh, have had maps either mental maps which were passed on in oral tradition and that by the way you always wonder well why did they have a fiddler on a sailing ship and sitting on the capstan and fiddling away sea shanties started because the person who did who sang the sea shanty actually sang out the names of the places that you passed along a coast they were a form of transmitting navigation information it's like that country and western song, you know, I've been everywhere, you know, list all the names of places. And, and that's what sea shanties were about. So that's how you knew going along a coast what was next, what to expect next, and that was passed on by that oral tradition. But people drew the maps that they needed. Now, when I was talking earlier about aerial photography and students' ability to see three-dimension, I had a friend who flew helicopters and he was on a um, contract in Africa with oil, oil exploration companies. And he was in, in Somalia. And uh, they were using aerial photographs because there weren't any maps of the region. And the photographs were lying out on, on a table. And he was absolutely stunned that the uh, men looking at these maps could identify and read them very easily. Well, how could, how could they know, looking at an aerial photograph, in other words, a bird's eye view, which no human has, right? You, don't, you never have a, a view looking down on, on the world in a map view. Yeah. And, and yet here were these people that clearly had a mental map yeah. of the area in their minds. And we talked about this for a long time. We finally decided that the reason that that, that had happened is that the men – as in many societies, the women gathered small game and fish and, and vegetables and so on, but the men did the big game hunting. 
And in that society, a big game were antelope and deer and so on. And they killed them with arrows with a relatively slow-acting poison. So what would happen is that they would shoot the deer and then they would have to follow it sometimes for two or three days before it would die. And the landscape was such that they could go kilometers before the animal died. They had then to get that animal back to their home base. So they had to have a mental map as they were following that deer where they were going. Yeah. Well, I can immediately connect with that. I mean, obviously, from my own completely uh, sedentary kind of experience. But, you know, when I think back to my hometown in Swanage, I have a pretty good idea, because I was brought up there, of how the streets go. I don't think I think of it as an aerial view exactly, but as going down the streets at great speed, I know how they connect very easily in my mind. Whereas any everywhere else that I've lived... It's much vaguer than that, and it's just that experience at the time which yep. was so formative, yep. you know, several years long. And, and if, if we went back there, Julian, you would find that there were certain buildings or certain things that, that, that were put into your mind that gave you those, those visual and mental clues of where you were on that map. That, was, yep. that relates to my story earlier about coming onto a street and you go several blocks before you start to see things that you recognize. Now, one of the things that you see with North Americans going to England, for example, they just find that it's absolutely chaotic because in North America, particularly once they moved west, they developed a grid system. I mean, you you go west of Toronto, Winnipeg, for example, all of the streets are lined up, streets going um, north-south and avenues going east-west. And they're in a, in a total grid system that are numbered. You know, in Calgary, you, you can live on 12th Avenue southwest, and everybody knows where that is. It's easy to find because of that Cartesian grid system that's put on it for people. So people produce the maps they need. They don't necessarily represent the actual reality. For example, in the Hudson Bay Company archives, and there's about 16,000 maps there that are just priceless. There's one drawn on vellum, uh, deerskin, and it was drawn by an Aboriginal group that that is a a group of Chippewaian Indians on the west shore of Hudson Bay. And they arrived at Churchill on the southwest corner of Hudson Bay, and the uh, Hudson Bay Company fur trader said, well, you know, where did you come from? Can you draw a map? And the guy took the element and drew a line, straight line, and then he put lines running into that line at right angles. And they couldn't figure out what he was doing. And then they realized that that straight line was the west coast of Hudson Bay, and he didn't care whether it was curved or not. What he was concerned about was coming from where he was at the north end of Hudson Bay down to the south end, all he needed to know was how many rivers did he have to cross before he got to Churchill. And so the lines going in at right angles were the rivers that entered Hudson Bay. And so here's a map that works for that person predetermined by what's uh, important to them. Okay, so we have distortions of reality in that case. So that's because only certain things are important to the people. But I suppose we could also have distortion because you have a particular agenda for whatever reason. But we have a, th- a third kind of distortion is where it's it's just physically impossible or almost impossible to represent it in two dimensions when it's three dimensional. Uh-huh. I'm thinking here, of course, of the globe. And yep. um, is it? I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it called the Mercator projection? Mercator projection. Now, when I look at that, it's, it's one thing that strikes me immediately is that Antarctica seems much bigger, of course, than it really should be. Um, and then I, I went to Wikipedia just because this is uncontroversial. So I thought I might get some decent information about this. And I came across a page that was looking at various projections of the globe. And I was amazed at how many different versions of this there are. It's incredible. Uh, But just to back up and lead into this story, the Phoenicians drew very good maps of Western Europe for coastline because they were trading all the way. And and some people think they traded up as far as Scandinavia. And the Phoenician maps, by the way, were accurate for direction and distance. The Roman maps were only accurate for direction direction. And yet the Roman maps came after the Phoenician maps. The reason is that for the Romans, they didn't have to rely on the wind and the tide. They had oars. They could row. They had power. All they needed to know was the right direction, whereas the Phoenicians, it depended on the wind and the tide 
and, and all of these other factors. So again, people produce the maps that, that they require for getting around. But the three-dimensional issue is really an interesting one because as far as maps are concerned, what you've pointed out with Mercator is that that is essentially living on a flat earth. And uh, I prefer a flat earth, by the way, and I think I might have made this comment before. Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, actually, about the flat earth. This <laughs> yes. has become, amazingly, this has come into vogue um, in recent years. Yeah, and, well. and, 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 I, and I, I thought that I would ask you about this. So I, I especially listened to an interview with a fairly prominent proponent of flat earth theory yeah. recently. And... Uh, you know, I gave him a listen because I like to think that I give people a chance, and um, I, I was. It was notable that he uh, gave virtually nothing by way of evidence, and there was something interesting that he he made his position completely unfalsifiable by saying that whoever had designed the cosmos had designed it in such a way that it, if you did any kind of astronomical observation, it would give you the idea that the, the world was a sphere when in fact it wasn't so i mean yeah, <laughs> you know what, yeah. what can you what could you say you had no evidence whatsoever yeah, well, but it was interesting to listen to well my my uh, support of the flat earth is much more prosaic in that um when we had a flat earth we could push the idiots off the edge <laughs> now with a round earth they just keep coming back at you so as i said i have a much more prosaic reason but one of uh, but the I things- must challenge you, Tim. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know that the Earth actually is a sphere? Well, of, of course, this is one of the arguments that before Columbus, they didn't know the Earth was round. That that's utter nonsense. When you when you're calculating the radius of the Earth as the Greeks were, all, all you have to do is look at an eclipse. You've got the shadow of the Earth on on the Moon or on the Sun and whatever. You can see the curvature. If you get up to a high enough altitude. Uh, and you don't have to get that high. For example, I mentioned Winnipeg earlier in the very flat plain of, of, of uh, Western Canada. From the tall buildings in Winnipeg, at, say 32 floors up, so what, 320 feet, so uh, 100 meters, you can see the curvature of the Earth. So that's just a, a myth. I've often wondered about that. You actually can see it. I've wondered if that's actually an optical illusion. I'm not saying I believe in flat Earth, but I just wondered if no. that particular observation is an illusion. But you're saying you, you really can see the curvature. Well, that's part of the difficulty, you see, because amongst the Inuit, which is what Canadians now call the Eskimos, although a lot of them didn't want that name, they see the world uh, as a saucer-shaped that they live in the center of a saucer. Now, the reason for that is, is the visual indicators. And in the Arctic, there is a, a mirage phenomenon called looming. And because it's very cold air, then you get a very thin layer of warm air right at the ground level, even over the Arctic ice. That makes the horizon appear to rise or to be elevated. So your visual indicators are that you're in, in uh, uh, the middle of an earth that's got a, a rim around the edge of it. And so that's perfectly logical. Absolutely, yes, and, yes. But here's the point, that for most people, the earth is flat. Does, it doesn't matter to them. I mean, you say, you get, try to get people to understand a great circle route or how going from England to uh, Toronto, you've got to fly over the middle or north end of Greenland. They can't figure that out. They can't do the mental gymnastics of the three dimension that are necessary. One of the most difficult concepts in weather and climate is Coriolis, which is a, a, an effect created by the Earth spinning. When you look down on the Earth from the north, on the North Pole, you look down on it, it's spinning in a counterclockwise direction. When you look down on it from the South Pole, it's spinning in a clockwise direction. And yet both hemispheres are joined at the equator. And so what I used to do was walk into the class with a, a small globe that I could spin. And then I would point the North Pole at the student, say, look, there it is. See, it's going in a counterclockwise direction. And then I would gradually turn the globe around, keeping it spinning. And, and then have them look at it, looking at the South Pole. And, oh, my goodness, it's going in a clockwise direction. And that kind of mental gymnastics of going from a two-dimensional image to a three-dimensional image, most of them simply couldn't do it. They couldn't imagine it. Now, that's very important in evolution of society because the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, by that I mean the people that were trying to analyze the world in the period from about 700 B.C. 
to around 300 BC, about a 400-year span. That is generally referred to as the period of the Greek miracle. Now, what was the Greek miracle about? The Greek miracle was about the third dimension. These people were aware of both the curvature of the earth, the third dimension, and then also the distortions of that world created by looking at it through our curved eyeballs. And one of the things about the Parthenon, apart from the fact of of it being the dimension for the Middle Ages and Da Vinci's uh, Here's the Man, Et Que Homo, and so on, was that the Greeks knew if you built a platform perfectly flat and the person stood at one end of it and looked along that platform, it would appear to dip in the middle. So they deliberately built the center of the base of the Parthenon a few centimeters higher than either end. Why would it appear that way? Well, because of the curvature of the eye. Hmm. They did the same thing, by the way, with the columns. They did them nice, simple Doric columns. But if you stood at the bottom of the column and looked up, if it was straight tapered, it would appear to go in in the center. So they deliberately bulged the center of the column to overcome that illusion. Now, that's an awareness of how you're seeing the world that simply it disappears through the dark ages and it only comes back with the renaissance but is that really an awareness of three dimensions or just an awareness of optical illusion and lack of optimality of the eye yeah, well, it's because both. i mean earlier than that you know you've got the pyramids and the like well they're built in three dimensions yep well it's both because you see what happens is the the, the greeks didn't really uh, develop it much beyond that, but when the rebirth of the Greek miracle, the Renaissance, and and by the way, the joke in England in architecture is that spelt W R E N, Sir Christopher Renaissance, okay, because he was the architect that was principal. But or one could say the Etonian way of pronouncing it, Renaissance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's um, the the thing. The thing about the the Renaissance is. We can talk about Copernicus, mm. heliocentrism. Most people still don't know how the moon goes around the earth and what the relationship is. But that required a three-dimensional awareness of spatial relationships, right? So Copernicus comes along. Yeah. That's the third dimension there. And by the way, it's not until almost the 20th century that the heliocentric system was proved that it wasn't a geocentric world. Yeah. But at the same time that you've got Copernicus going on, you've got the introduction of the vanishing point in painting. That is that uh, if you're doing a, a painting of a landscape, there's a vanishing point uh, to which all lines will uh, focus. And, of course, the, uh, the supreme illustrator of that was Canaletto, the Italian artist doing paintings of, of Venice. He also, by the way, did an awful lot of paintings in England using this same vanishing point idea. Mm. So it's the introduction of three-dimension. If you think about primitive art, it's two-dimensional. Well, yeah, sure, I, I agree. So you're talking about Copernicus here, so we're talking the 16th century. Yep. And we're talking about the representation of cosmology in three dimensions. But you said, at least you implied, that it was that awareness of three dimensions that allowed Copernicus to uh, represent it in that way. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, and, and, and um, but if that, but yeah. just wondering about this because if you look back to the previous, so in the Aristotelian system of the the spheres, then they are spheres, aren't they? You have the world in the middle, and then you have these spheres sort of mounted around it. So that's a three dimensional system, isn't it? Well, it, it's only three dimensional in, in in that there there's a juxtaposition of of the objects. It's not three dimensional in as a, as a concept. So to illustrate that point, the concept of three dimension also comes into music in the 16th, 15th and 16th century. If you think about Elizabethan music, it's two-dimensional. And it's only when you start to get harmony and harmonics coming in that music becomes three-dimensional. So you've got cosmology, the astronomy, you've got the music, you've got the art, and suddenly this awareness... Right. Yeah, I, su I yeah. suppose it's the kind of absolute way in which you're presenting this, but I mean, the fact that you've, you've yeah. built up many things there does certainly gives the impression that there's a, a greater emphasis on 
more dimensions in the way that we represent reality. So I can certainly go along with you on exactly. that. I mean, that that process continues. I mean, you brought up music. Of course, you pressed my button yeah. by doing yeah, that. <laughs> um, you know, so you've got you've got harmony. But then, of course, you've as I say, that continues in the centuries thereafter. So that there are other dimensions of music which become equally important, even to the point where in the twentieth century you have even timbre, the actual quality of the sound of yep. instruments being given yep. equal weighting to harmonic yep. and melodic and rhythmic elements, which is fascinating in it, itself. That that process continues. Exactly. And by the way, that idea of dimensions in the uh, cosmological world and mathematical world, they are now arguing that there are 19 dimensions. And of course, uh, one of the ones that a lot of people are still struggling with is the dimension of time, the fourth dimension and relativity. Very few people can tell you what Einstein was actually saying, but that's the fourth dimension coming in. So as we see our world and perceive our world, we need to be able to look at it through different dimensions. Now, my point to get back to our original theme of maps is, of course, it's Mercator that is struggling with a three-dimensional world and putting it on a two-dimensional map for people to use. In other words, Mercator is going in the opposite direction. Now, what was the purpose of Mercator's map? And the answer was, it was invaluable to what was important at that time, the age of discovery, that of great circle sailing, the shortest distance between two points on the globe, but displayed on a two-dimensional map. This is the whole point of Mercator. It was going in the opposite direction. Now, this is the same way, by the way, Julian, that we're going in both directions. I mean, one of the great problems for computer designers is slowing the computer down to talk to the stupid human, right? I mean, the keyboard is archaic. You listen to computers talking to each other. It's at an enormous rate of speed. But that's all got to be slowed down for us slow and dumb and stupid humans. So throughout history, you've got this juxtaposition or contradiction is a better term between a very complex world and understanding it and then a a mind that is only gradually evolving to an awareness of just how complex it is. And so Mercator is aware that the Earth is round, but he knows that the people that are doing the discovery and exploration are demanding a two-dimensional map that they can put out on their chart table and they can draw a line on it that is a straight line but is in fact a curved line on the surface of the earth. And so the Mercator map was really a map only designed for navigators. The problem is that it became adapted as the standard map for displaying a three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional surface. And so most people's understanding of the world and spatial relationships of the world are that map in the classroom that was hanging on the wall that was grossly distorted by the Mercator system. Because on a Mercator map, the only part of the map that is actually accurate in terms of distance and uh, spatial relationships is the equator. The further you move away from the equator, the greater the distortion until you get to the poles where you've got a single point on the surface of the Earth is given the same length dimension as the equator. And as you mentioned with Antarctica, I mean, when, when you look at Greenland completely distorted. In fact, one of the things I used to have for my classroom, for my students, was an object that they could recognize and then draw it on a Mercator map, and then they could see the distortion. So if you draw a human head on the Mercator map, the chin is so small and the the cranium is massive, (laughs) and then you start to get some understanding of the distortion of that map. And of course, what and, and I suppose in, in, in some people's minds, then, if the Arctic regions are so massive, then, of course, if the ice is melting, then we are in for serious trouble. Oh, God, exactly. <laughs> oh, exactly. And I've raised that point. One of the reasons that that can be uh, used against people is they see the Arctic Ocean as this line across the top of the Mercator map. But in terms of the actual area and scale and size of it, but here's another thing, and, and this gives you an idea of perception. There was a Dr. John Dee, who was um, Queen Elizabeth I's um, astronomer. He drew a map for Queen Elizabeth because Elizabeth wanted to discover the Northwest Passage 
And she realized that, yes, you could look at it from the eastern end, but why not try and find it from the western end? And she realized that if you could find the Northwest Passage, eastern end and western end, you could then control the North Atlantic and the North Pacific and therefore effectively control the Northern Hemisphere. This was geopolitics on a scale that most people can't even imagine today, but it's a measure of what an incredible leader Elizabeth I was. And the science advisor for her was Dr. John Dee, and he drew a map, quite happy to send it so you can put it on your website, looking down on the North Pole. Now, you show that map to people today, you show a map, even even a regular drawn map of looking down on the North Pole, it takes people some time to figure out what they're looking at, sure. because it's a view of the world that they don't see. Yes. Well, it was one of those listed on that Wikipedia page, and it was dramatically different, of course. Yes. Yeah. And of course, the reason that people can be fooled about the Arctic ice melting is that all of that Arctic basin, which is about 16 million square kilometers, freezes over every winter. But two-thirds of it, that is about 10 million square kilometers, melts every single summer. And it melts at an incredible rate of about 67,000 square kilometers a day. That's an area larger than Belgium every single day of ice that is melting. But people can't imagine it because they can't imagine the Arctic Ocean. But, of course, that's what people are exploiting. They want to take an area where they know people know nothing about and say, oh, this is going on here and this is going on there. And they say, oh, my goodness. Whoa, that's terrible. And it's just simply people's ignorance that is being exploited. But that's what's always gone on. I mentioned earlier about how the colors on the maps was a political issue and the relationship between places were political issues there was a marvelous argument to try and get america involved in in the uh, second world war where they drew a map that triangulated showing that how hawaii was in the american sphere of influence and it was a grossly distorted map but it was used to present a geopolitical argument to commit america to the war And so the maps are distortions in themselves, and then they are used to deceive and distort people's images of things. Yeah. Something I picked up from a previous conversation that you had, um, you were talking about, um, gone out of my mind, Halford Mackinder, I think the name was. Oh, yes. Yes, Sir Halford That's right. And um, so I looked up about that, and there's a map here associated with his thinking, which just looks pretty much like what we expect this sort of representation of the globe to be. It's a little bit distorted, of course, in various ways. But what's most striking about it is the way that it's labelled, actually. So you have this, in the middle, you have this pivot area, which is basically the Russian Moscow, um, Moscow Plain, yeah. Yep. Right. And um, all the way around it, what we normally think of as you know important places, you know, like America and all that, they're represented as being islands. And so just the way that it's labelled gives you a completely different yep. view of looking at the world so that this pivot area becomes the centre of the world and everything else is kind of incidental to that. And so the focus is on, you know, whoever's in control of that area of the world is in control of the whole world. It is fascinating that just by labeling, you can change you know, your perception of what is yep. virtually the same map. Exactly. Think about the Cold War. They argued that it was an East-West conflict. It wasn't. It was a North-South conflict. Right. right? It was over the pole. Why do you think the Americans built all the radar sites along northern Canada's line? Because that's the way the Russians were going to come at them. It wasn't east-west at all. It was north-south. But by putting the Iron Curtain in place across Europe, Churchill made it an east-west conflict. But it was the same thing. I I remember talking about the Cuban crisis, which, by the way, I was actively involved as uh, flying and, and, uh, and as an operations officer. And Americans said to me, oh, well, you know, we had to go and stop uh, the Russians getting into Cuba. You know, that's only 90 miles from America. I said, the Russians have always been 90 miles from America. It's called the Bering Straits, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, sure. And what seems to have been yes. most important, looking back at this Mackinder doctrine here, is, is to make sure that Europe and Asia are estranged from each other. 
if Germany in particular and Russia were joined together, this would be we seen as a, a major force that could actually dominate the world. So there yep. seemed to be some, at least from a British point of view, to make sure that there, there was tension along that line. Yep. Um, and I'm just wondering actually whether that tension is still politically enforced today with what we're seeing going well, absolutely. on. Absolutely. Not yeah. only is it enforced between Europe and, and uh, Russia, uh, but it's also enforced between Europe and Asia. If you think about the continent of Eurasia, it isn't, Europe's not a separate continent. Mm. Yet it's listed as one of the continents. It's a myth. Right. Right? The only way that you could argue that Europe is separate is geologically that the two plates, the one that makes up Europe and the one that makes up Asia, they meet along uh, the Ural Mountains, which is, uh, they're only, uh, what, about 3,000 feet in, in our 1,000 meters in elevation. But in history and psychologically, they separate white European Russians from Asian Mongoloid Russians. And that's a huge issue in, in Russia today and in the Soviet Union. But Mackinder's idea, by the way, in 1904, he literally was sitting in his office in Oxford looking at a map of the world and posed the question, as academics will do, and say, okay, if I wanted to control the world, which part of the world would I want to control? And he looked at the map and he saw this large, flat, green area which we now call the Moscow Plain, and he called it the heartland and the later the world island. And he said, if I could control that, then I could control the world. Yeah, I've got a quote here, yep. actually, from a, a book, Democratic Ideals and Reality by yep. Mackinder. And it's just a nice little quote, I'll say it. Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Yep. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. Exactly. Exactly. Now, of course, what happened was 1901, Queen Victoria dies. The British Empire is on the decline. Why? Because of the decline of its naval power. And Mackinder, his ideas then switched the thinking. Because one of the things that people need to understand is the leaders are always looking for academic or intellectual justification for what they're doing. And so in 1904, Mackinder's ideas transferred control of the world from controlling the oceans, which were set out, by the way, by a guy by the name of Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, and his uh, rule of the British Empire through control of the oceans, switched to control of the land. And so the whole world's focus switched from sea power to land power. That controlled the next hundred years. And by the way, Mackinder's ideas, where you controlled that region, didn't take into account the realities. Now, the reason he chose that Moscow plain was that he said, well, here's a great big flat green area, so it'll produce lots of agriculture. We need food in order to be self-sufficient. And then we've got natural boundaries. All around it, we've got the frozen Arctic Ocean, and we've got the Himalaya Mountains and, and the uh, mountains of, of Asia. And then we've got the Alpine Mountains, and we've got the, the mountains of Scandinavia. And he saw then, because somebody pointed out, well, there's a, a weak point in the defense around that world island or the heartland, and that's through the North German plain. And, of course, what happened during the First World War? If you could close off that North German gateway to the world island, then you could control the world. And, of course, who had tried this earlier before Hitler even went to control it? Napoleon. But after the war, about 1947, an American theoretician was looking at the uh, Mackinder's ideas and said, look, you don't have to control the island to control it. If you can control all around it, you can control it. And of course, by now, after the Second World War, you've now got the growth of communism under Stalin and the Americans wanting to contain that. So Spikeman developed what's called the Rimland theory. He said, if you control all of the land around the heartland, you can control the world in the same way. And they set about with Foster Dulles and other American uh, leaders, secretaries of state, they set up the treaty organizations, NATO, 
North Atlantic Treaty Organization, CENTO, the Central Treaty Organization, METO, the Middle East Treaty Organization, and CEDO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. They were linked together and controlled the Rimland and controlled the World Island. Yeah, now please and do, so, in, a, in a moment, please do tell us about those treaty organizations, because the one that immediately you know connects with me, obviously, is NATO. And it does remind me of a conversation I had with Paul Craig Roberts a, a couple of months ago or so, where he was saying he could really understand why Russia seems to be so worried about NATO because the way it's crept more and more towards its border and it, looking at it from this historical perspective that seems to be a, a continuing playing out of oh, this Rimland yeah. theory. It, oh absolutely and, and um, now the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization it died with the Vietnam War because um, members of that were Australia and New Zealand and they said no we want out. Uh, the America belonged to all of them, by the way, because they were the world power after the Second World War. But there was w only one other country that belonged to more than two of them, and that was Turkey. And Turkey belonged to NATO, and it belonged to uh, the Middle East and the Central Treaty Organization. Why was that? Well, Turkey was the only country that had the Soviet Union on one side and the West on the other side. It was critical. And you saw that when Turkey and Greece were fighting over Cyprus and Jimmy Carter decided to back the Greeks and not to back Turkey and Turkey said, fine, we're pulling out of NATO. Well, Jimmy Carter had to backpedal like mad because NATO was still critical. But yeah, the, the Soviets and the Russian opposition to NATO is because it was designed to contain them. Yeah, and, yeah, and you mentioned Jimmy Carter there. Yeah. And of course, I immediately thought of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, of course, was National Security Advisor for Carter. And he wrote yep. that book, The Grand Chessboard, um, and he was very indebted to Mackinder. And he proposed his own kind of uh, yep. pivot point being you know, Central Asia and the Caucasus. That, that was necessary for the West to control. Exactly. Exactly. That's why, of course, you see now t Turkey and, and what's going on there, but, and, and it's still critical between between the, the Christian West and the Muslim East, and Turkey's pivotal as it has been, you know, Constantinople, Istanbul, and all that stuff throughout history. So it, it's still pivotal t to the whole thing. Now, the one thing that overrode all of this was air power. We've gone from control of the oceans, uh, sea power, to land power. Now you've got the age of air power. But that was very quickly overridden by missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And that changed the whole focus of the world. But behind all of this, of course, continues. Now, what's interesting is that at the end of the Cold War, what was really going on was a return to sea power. The massive buildup of huge fleets uh, by both the Soviets and the Americans. And the Americans developed uh, fleets, task forces, they call them. And they had, uh, for example, and I, again, I know this from my experience with the anti-submarine work that I did when I was in the Air Force. They had a task force. And, and task force were made up of a very large aircraft carrier surrounded by battleships and destroyers. And they would patrol a certain area. So Task Force Alpha, for example, sailed up and down the Atlantic Ocean constantly. And to give you an idea of the scale on which this was going on, I was in Norfolk um, in Virginia. It was a massive base. And I said to the base officer, base admin officer, I said, how many people are on the base? And he said, he said I don't know. And I said, well, but you're the base admin officer. He said, well, the reason I don't know is because when Task Force Alpha sails, there's about 90,000 people leave the base. Cool. And that's just one of the task forces. Mm. And then they had Task Force Bravo in the Pacific. They had the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean. They had the 7th Fleet off the coast of Asia. So the Cold War at the end went back to being a power of the sea. And, of course, the real power of the sea wasn't just the surface vessels, but it was the submarine. The buildup of submarines at the end of the Cold War, the Soviets had 700 submarines. The nuclear subs that the Americans had, an unbelievable power force. I mean, when you've got one intercontinental ballistic missile submarine that's virtually undetectable, that could carry 10 intercontinental ballistic missiles, with each missile having 10 warheads that they could direct to different targets, Imagine the firepower of just one submarine. And one of the things that people need to be aware of now is that China now has 40 nuclear submarines. 
yet you hardly hear that ever talked about. No. Now there are other maps and views can of I, can the I world. Just, uh, can I just uh, uh, jump in yeah, there? Sorry. You say that you know during that Cold War era there, there was a return to the power of the sea, but looking at things today a lot of people would argue that we're in a different kind of era where we have the power of the media is actually in the ascendant. And so it's the power of propaganda. So that in the West, you, you have the domination of very few corporations who are in control of the media. And no doubt in other areas of the world, you know, there's this kind of monolithic approach to media so that really the battle is taking place most fiercely in that sort of propaganda realm, perhaps in a way that it hasn't done to that scale ever before. The scale is certainly... Is- certainly larger. I mean, when the, the word propaganda and, and, and Goebbels and, and Hitler, uh, what was going on there, but the scale of it. And of course, one of the ways that that became influential was with the coining of the phrase global village by Marshall McLuhan back in the 70s. Of course, what he was talking about was that the village or the globe has shrunk to the size of a village because of electronic communication. I mean, it was James Callahan, the British prime minister, that said that, you know, the uh, lie is once around the world before the truth has even got its boots on. Well, now it's a hundred times around the world before you've even got the boots out of the closet uh, because of electronic communication. But all of this, you only understand when you start looking at maps and and seeing the relationships of things and then the use of the distortion of maps and understanding those and, and then how that's been used by these uh, power elite. Yeah, and so that really leads me on to my main question, which is how can we regain control over this? I mean, you know, as you've explained, we are influenced in our thinking in various ways by the, the maps that have been made, yeah. not always produced for malevolent purposes, but sometimes certainly. Yeah. And as you've shown, they can have a dramatic effect on the ways in which we see the world and understand our place in it. So given that a correct understanding of our world is so important, how can we reclaim the map which... I mean, after all, it's not really the preserve of the power elite. The concept belongs to us all. So how can we regain control over that concept for ourselves? The focus of of all of that is education. It was the control of information uh, by the... uh the aristocracy that uh, kept people in servitude. And now with the internet, information is now available. And of course, what you see right away, those that want to control people are trying to get control of the internet. I mean, Obama doing it from that left wing totalitarianism and and so on. A lot of the uh, large corporations trying to control it. But information awareness is the final freedom and that's what we've got to fight for and that's what is important here and hopefully that will bring about um, awareness and prevent people being exploited. Well, there's an interesting dynamic there, isn't there? A tension between information and awareness because when you have a proliferation of information that doesn't necessarily mean that people become more aware of what is true because we've been talking about the flat earth and I was going to ask you also about geocentrism which also seems to be quite popular at the yeah. moment and i personally haven't been persuaded and i don't think it's very likely at all that i will be persuaded by arguments in that direction but that's part of the information flux that's out there so yeah you know there is a problem there isn't there is a, there is a, a yeah. tension between those two things well of course the overload idea when i was in the in the air force um, they used to do um, escape and evasion exercises so you'd, you'd be put out in a community and then if you got captured they could quote unquote torture you so they would do things like tie you up to a tree in the middle of a, of a field in the dark and what scared the powers that be, how quickly people started spilling information. So they changed from name, rank, and serial number was all you ever gave, and that was the big thing in the Second World War, that in the Cold War they just said, if you get captured, just start talking. Just babble. Let the enemy sort out what's true and not true. And that's, of course, information overload. And that's part of what's going on with the Internet, that people are still trying to sort out. There's so much information coming at them. Mm. So would you agree then that the centrally important facet of an education, certainly in any age, but particularly now, has got to be the ability to think critically about what it is that you're seeing and hearing? Absolutely. Without that particular facility, you are going to be just bombarded. But if you can sift that information by using the criteria of critical thinking 
then you are in the driving seat. It seems to me oh, exactly. that's what has to be encouraged everywhere, really. Yeah, but, I don't see, but, but you see, I don't see that going on in education generally. I mean, no. we had no. Dr. Pester on talking about Common Core. And yep. so much of what he said there seemed to be moving in the opposite direction. And yep. just recently, my daughter, who is 11, has been doing these um, national curriculum tests. And she's been for months and months, they've been doing virtually nothing else but practicing for these tests. And I think it's I think it's appalling, actually, because all the other subjects, you know, I mean, it's it's all mathematics and, and um, English based, of course, and everything else, you know, music, geography, history, all that's gone out of the window. And she said to me, you know, I really miss doing art. She loves art. But they've had to just put that to side because it's so important to have these tests and what gets me about this is the fact that the teachers know yep. what the kids are capable of doing they already know that and in fact the, the next school to which she's going uh, has already said that they're going to be assessing the kids again when they go there so what is this all about it's not really about finding out what they're capable of doing because that's already known so to me it seems to be more to do with conformity than it is about education and i'm oh, really it, quite it, cross about it to be honest well it, it's indoctrination not education that's the word uh, phrase i use it i'll just uh, quote here this is from the hindu prince gautama siddhartha he said do not believe in anything simply because you have heard it do not believe in anything simply because it is spoken and rumored by many do not believe in anything simply because it is found written in your religious books. Do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teachers and elders. Do not believe in traditions because they have been handed down for many generations. But after observation and analysis, when you find that anything agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. That to me is, is, is just fascinating. But you see, this is the problem. Leaders are afraid. Uh, they know that they need an educated workforce to do the skills and do the jobs, but they know the minute they educate them, they start asking questions. And uh, they can't allow that. Mm. Another thing about this critical thinking thing, which I think is so important, is that there can become a kind of abandoning of all that's gone before. You yep. know, you, you become the center of your universe because you've got to sift everything from within your own consciousness. And so anything that anybody says to you by way of tradition, particularly, that's all bad necessarily. And of course, that doesn't follow yep. because there are good and bad traditions. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, it, it yep. has to, it but has what to be. Yeah. Is, is that the minute you, you step outside of the prevailing wisdom they're going to isolate you you're going to become yeah. attacked you see that now with uh, you know global warming skeptic climate change yeah. deniers and 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 uh, oh if you ask questions about obama's uh, documentation oh you're a birther so you isolate people and marginalize them and and that's how you keep control so well the reason why i brought that up was because yeah. you know i'm being part of alternative media here and also a christian yeah. some people see there's a kind of tension there where you know you need to be absolutely skeptical about everything and that means you must therefore be in principle skeptical in an in a in a very negative sense about all tradition just because it's tradition and I've always thought that to be unreasonable really because there's no reason why I should not by my own act of free will and judgment accept the basis of a tradition uh, no you know but by using my critical faculties say well I think that tradition is worthy of respect and yet that doesn't chime, you know, with what a lot of people are saying. But we should be able to sift not only, you know, these sort of random data that comes at us, but also to sift traditions as well. And so just because something has been handed down doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. It could actually oh, be but, fantastically but, good. Yeah, but Julia, there's a key couple of words you used in there about Christianity. Free will. If you are a oh, yeah. Christian, you believe that God gave you free will. Absolutely. He didn't tell you how you should use it. He left that to you. And that is what is absolutely central to Christianity, that free will. And, of course, that was the debate of, of Hobbes and, and all of those, you know, rationalization of the, of the 17th century. That was central to it, and, and it really should be central to it now. Yeah, and what I find really fascinating is how the West has actually started to move really radically away from the idea of free will. So we have so many oh, sort of the determinists saying we know that the, the scientific worldview excludes free will. It's just an illusion. Yeah, but it's the way that you defeat Christianity. 
Mm. So this is all part of, of how you defeat Christianity. And, defeat and, and the sad part is the majority yeah. of people don't want the onus of free will. So you, you feel that, I've always felt this, I don't know if you agree, that there is actually a real political dimension to this. So if you actually. can convince people that their free will yep. is an illusion, this actually has a knock-on effect in a political oh. sense that it must surely tend to neutralize people. They don't feel the need to act so much because after all, anything that happens is just going to happen anyway. Well, that's the whole point about what we've talked about in this whole program is that what people think is real, a map or, or, or whatever, is, is actually an, an illusion that can be mm. distorted. Yeah, so this very concept that you don't have free will, it's an illusion, that is a kind of mind map yep. that's being pressed upon us by a certain ideology. Yep. And we're being told, because this is something that the experts, of course, yep. <laughs> hold to be true, we must just accept that. Yep. Whereas it's actually irrational. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we did actually look at this subject um, with a philosopher by the name of um, Angus Manouge um, some time ago, and it was a fascinating conversation about free will, so I'm very glad that we, we had that one, and um, he gave some very good arguments in favour of it. Yeah. Um, as usual, Dr. Ball, this has been an amazing conversation, <laughs> but we've gone everywhere, it seems, and yeah. uh, it's one of the things I do like talking with you is that you do have this encyclopedic mind, and uh, you have this kind of an impressionist approach where you throw so much information out there that sort of latches on to so many different themes and subjects that it gives one almost like an, an endless amount of things to dwell on thereafter. So I do find these conversations uh, fascinating, and I do hope that we can continue talking about these kinds of things in future. Well, thank you. And yeah, interlinking. And, and, mm. and one of the things I'd like to talk with you about in the future, and, and what's created much of the problem is, is we talked about information uh, overwhelming. We've gone from where being a generalist was a good thing, that now if you're not a specialist, uh, you're not in tune with the world. The problem is the spe specialist can't see the, the forest for the trees. Right. And that's part of what we're talking about here today. Yes, I can imagine. Exactly. Yes. It's not in the interest of those people in control to have fully rounded people because then they can see what's going on around them i absolutely agree with exactly you. yeah well thank you again okay. dr ball for coming on it's been wonderful speaking to you and i do look forward to our next conversation okay julian bye-bye well, thanks very much for listening to that interview with Dr. Tim Ball. Always great to speak to, of course. There will be no podcast next week because that is half term. And in fact, I've decided to extend the break for one extra week, actually, for various reasons. And that will also give me a chance to deal with some administration things to do with the Mind Renewed as well. Uh, after that, I will be speaking, I very much hope, to Anthony Rutuno again, and then the week following to John Thompson, the author of Jesus Bread and Chocolate, Crafting a Handmade Faith in a Mass Market World. And after that, I just don't know at the moment, so over the next few weeks I shall be hopefully building up the schedule of interesting people to chat with. And just an update on my voice, because many of you have been asking about it. Apparently, there's nothing wrong with me. I have seen four doctors. I've seen two GPs and two consultants, ear, nose and throat uh, specialists. And apparently, there's nothing wrong with me, which is really weird, because I do actually still suffer from it occasionally, although it's much better than it used to be. They have no idea. They've ruled out anything serious. And so I'm just basically having to live with this. So I very much suspect it's something that I'm doing, some kind of... Um, I don't know, the way I'm using my voice in certain contexts. So all I have to do is to experiment and see where I go from there. So I'm delighted. There's nothing seriously wrong with me. And I thank you for your prayers. And hopefully it will get better and better. And eventually it will go away. So thanks again for your concern. And uh, as I say, it will be a couple of weeks before the next podcast. So in the meantime, God bless. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the fairly near future. <laughs>